Good morning and welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God. His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO. Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Faith Lutheran Church in Godfrey, Illinois. Thank you to the generous underwriters of Sharper Iron, the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. And Luther Classical College, a college for Lutherans by Lutherans, opening in fall 2025. Learn more at lutherclassical.org. On this Friday, September 15th, we're studying Leviticus chapter 17, verses 1 to 16. In today's text, the Lord speaks to Israel concerning both the correct use and the misuse of blood among his people. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's Word today, we have with us returning guest, Pastor Joshua Haller. Pastor Haller serves at Grace Evangelical Lutheran Church in Fairgrove, Michigan. Pastor Haller, welcome back to Sharper Iron. Thanks for having me. As we get started today, Pastor, talk to us about the book of Leviticus. What should we know about this book and any context leading up to chapter 17 that'll help us understand God's Word today? Well, Leviticus is a book dedicated towards the divine service of the Old Testament and many of the laws that were required to conduct that divine service. Um, And where we are in chapter 17, uh, coming right after chapter 16, which is sort of the heart of the entire book, uh, speaking of the Day of Atonement, which is really the heart of the Old Testament worship, uh, this Day of Atonement made atonement for everything and everyone, both the tabernacle and everything inside of it, the priests and the Levites, and of course the people, so that they would have access to God. And so that day of atonement and atonement in general uh, really is the central focus and what is uh, needed most for the people to have communion with their God. Otherwise, they're completely cut off from him. And so chapter 16 talks a lot about blood and making atonement. And now chapter 17 uh, goes into more detail about uh, where that blood is to be offered and uh, how that blood is to be used. So that that is one of the connections between chapter 16 and 17. As you said, what we read in the text in chapter 16 is the heart of Leviticus, the center of the book, not only in terms of the the text, but in terms of the theology, the atonement that God makes for his people, he cleanses them, he cleanses the sanctuary so that he can dwell among them and give to them his holiness. And now we're going to keep talking more about blood, where that is to be offered, how it is to be used among the people. In a bit of a transitional chapter here in Leviticus, we do start to turn a a bit of a corner. We've, We've looked at sacrifices, the ordination of the priest, the clean and unclean distinction, all coming to fruition there in chapter 16, the Day of Atonement. Now we start to to make a transition. After this chapter, we're going to talk a lot about what it means for the people to live in that holiness that God has given. And so there's a bit of a transition that occurs here in this chapter as we talk about especially blood and where it is to be given, where it is to be used appropriately, how it is not to be used and can be misused. Maybe just a a bit of an introduction to that topic, Pastor Haller, because this isn't something I think that's as in our view as much today, 
why why is there such a concern for blood? Can you give us just a little bit of a background as to why this is such an important topic here? Yeah, I mean, uh, blood, as as uh, our Lord will instruct the people of Israel, is life. I mean, it is it is synonymous. Uh, the Lord says in verse eleven of chapter seventeen, the life of a flesh is in the blood. Uh, and then later on, it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. And then later in, chap uh, in verse 14, its blood is its life. The life of every creature is its blood. So that I think we can understand that, that blood is life for humans and animals alike. You take blood out of a body and it's dead. That's why the, sh the shedding of blood implies death uh, because the life of all flesh is in its blood. Um, and so when making atonement, uh, when making a sacrifice for one life for another, uh, we're going to be dealing with blood. That for an animal's life to be given in exchange for a human's uh, life, the blood has to be offered. Yeah. And for the, the pagan religions around Israel, when they get into the promised land, the use of blood within their rites is going to be far different than the way that the people of Israel are instructed to use it here. So there's a bit of a distinction that the Lord's going to make within this chapter to show his people what it means to receive holiness from him, rather than try to gain that holiness in some way on their own. Yeah, I think a lot of what our Lord's instructing here is to avoid pagan practices, that uh, the Israelites are both leaving Egypt where they were influenced by worship practices there, and now they're entering into a new land with many nations surrounding them that also will have false practices. And a lot of it has to deal with, with blood and its misuse. Um, there are a lot of pagan practices that uh, you were to drink, or as it's going to be in the, our chapter, to eat the animal's blood in order to receive sort of its, its life's power, uh, its vitality uh, for yourself as an individual. But then others would uh, use the blood to pour it out on the ground uh, to in, improve um, the harvest for that year, to give life to the land. Um, blood was also used to sort of feed spirits of the dead and false gods or to appease evil spirits. So lots of weird and strange practices used with the blood. And our Lord wants to make it very clear, you're not going to be doing those things. The blood is to be used for atonement, uh, and it's to be used for atonement within the tabernacle. Uh, otherwise, you are stepping outside of the congregation of Israel and therefore outside of communion with me. Yeah, yeah. And then you brought up another topic there that we'll encounter right away in this chapter, not only the use of blood, but also the place. Mm -hmm. the, the place of the worship, the place of the sacrifice, the place where blood makes atonement. That's going to be another key feature of this chapter of Leviticus chapter 17. So let's go ahead and turn to the text, Leviticus 17, beginning at verse 1. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron and his sons, and to all the people of Israel, and say to them, This is the thing that the Lord has commanded. If any one of the house of Israel kills an ox or a lamb or a goat in the camp, or kills it outside the camp, and does not bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting to offer it as a gift to the Lord in front of the tabernacle of the Lord, 
blood guilt shall be imputed to that man. He has shed blood, and that man shall be cut off from among his people. This is to the end that the people of Israel may bring their sacrifices that they sacrifice in the open field, that they may bring them to the Lord, to the priest at the entrance of the tent of meeting, and sacrifice them as sacrifices of peace offerings to the Lord. And the priest shall throw the blood on the altar of the Lord at the entrance of the tent of meeting, and burn the fat for a pleasing aroma to the Lord. So they shall no more sacrifice their sacrifices to goat demons, after whom they whore. This shall be a statute forever for them throughout their generations. And you shall say to them, Any one of the house of Israel, or of the strangers who sojourn among them, who offers a burnt offering or sacrifice, and does not bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting to offer it to the Lord, that man shall be cut off from his people. If any one of the house of Israel, or of the strangers who sojourn among them, eats any blood, I will set my face against that person who eats blood, and will cut him off from among his people. For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls, for it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. Therefore I have said to the people of Israel, No person among you shall eat blood, neither shall any stranger who sojourns among you eat blood. Any one also of the people of Israel, or of the strangers who sojourn among them, who takes in hunting any beast or bird that may be eaten, shall pour out its blood and cover it with earth. For the life of every creature is its blood, its blood is its life. Therefore I have said to the people of Israel, You shall not eat the blood of any creature, for the life of every creature is its blood. Whoever eats it shall be cut off. And every person who eats what dies of itself, or what is torn by beasts, whether he is a native or a sojourner, shall wash his clothes, and bathe himself in water, and be unclean until the evening. Then he shall be clean. But if he does not wash them or bathe his flesh, he shall bear his iniquity. That's our text for today. That's Leviticus chapter 17, verses 1 to 16. All right, so Pastor Haller, give us the overview of the first part of this of this chapter. It talks about the first couple of verses, the place of sacrifice, the place where these things are to happen. Uh, introduce that topic for us. Right. So uh, the Lord is very specific about where atonement is to be made, and it's not to be made in the camp, which would be <clears throat> basically where the Israelites are living, uh, where they've pitched their tents. And the tribes were surrounding the tabernacle. So the tabernacle is at the center of their entire life and community. They were not to offer any sacrifices, say, at their own personal tents, nor were they to go outside of the camp uh, into the wilderness and to offer sacrifices there, again, to avoid pagan practices. Uh, but they were to come where the Lord instructed them, which was to his tent, to his house. <clears throat> and there uh, the blood would be placed upon the altar. Um, and so, uh, again, it's at that entrance of the tent of meeting um, where they would meet the Lord with the blood. Hmm. Yeah, this this talk of the place, I, mean, I think, again, for us, maybe seems a little, well, that why does God care so much about where this happens? And what's, what's the big deal? I think looking at the previous chapter is, is helpful in the way that we saw in the Day of Atonement, God's holiness and God's mercy start there from the mercy seat in the whole, the most holy place and then go outward from there to the people. 
if if the people are to have the holiness that the Lord wants them to have, then they must go to him for that. So the the place actually matters because God has said he is going to dwell among his people here in this place. And to to try to find that holiness in another place <clears throat> is to just, I mean, invert the whole thing and to think that we can find holiness on our own rather than receive it as gift from God. Yeah, that's at the heart of this entire chapter is the understanding that the people do not make atonement for themselves. Uh, nor does the animal and its blood make atonement on its own, but it's God who uh, offers the blood for the people, uh, that they bring the blood to him and splatter it upon the altar, and now it's entered into his domain. It's his blood to use, and he uses it for their sake. And so to offer it anywhere else is to confess that uh, one can atone for themselves or they're trusting in false gods to make atonement. But to bring it to the Lord's house is to trust that he is the one who will atone for their sins. He is the one who will make them holy. He is the one who opens the gate that they can have communion with God. Hmm. So let's let's talk about some of the features then of what happens if a person does kill the ox, the lamb, the goat, in the camp or outside the camp, he needs then to bring that to the entrance of the tent of meeting, lest the blood guilt be imputed to him. What does that mean that the blood guilt <coughs> would be imputed to him if he doesn't do this? Yeah, the, the word is, is simply just blood rather than blood guilt, but I guess mm. the translation of blood guilt helps us better understand what's going on here. But basically it's the blood shall be imputed to that man. That word for imputed, we know well, from Genesis 15, verse 6, where uh, Abraham believes the Lord and it's counted to him as righteousness. So the blood is counted to that man who does not bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting. That is, it's on him. Uh, very much like the people crying out on Good Friday, let his blood be upon us and upon our children. We'll take it. We'll take the responsibility and essentially what the Lord is saying here is that you are guilty of murder, of murdering an animal uh, by not uh, following uh, my instructions and offering it at the altar. This is on you. Um, and um, that guilt leads to being cut off from among his people. He says he has shed blood. Again, that's referring to murder. And that man shall be cut off from among his people. That excommunication is uh, is absolutely uh, almost worse than death itself because you are now outside of the camp. You are outside of the congregation. You are a pagan, a Gentile, as we'll know it in the New Testament, uh, and you have no communion with God whatsoever. Yeah, it's a, it's a very strong penalty that the Lord gives here. And the, the irony of it, as you brought up what the, the crowds say there at Jesus' crucifixion, they want his blood on them, and they mean it, they're willing to bear the guilt. The irony of it is that God does desire to use the blood of this sacrifice, mm -hmm. he desires to use the blood of Jesus to atone for our sins, mm -hmm. but when we, when we approach that holiness of God in somehow thinking we've earned it or in our own way, then we entirely reverse it, and that blood becomes a matter of guilt that we bear, rather than that which takes our guilt away. And boy, that just reminded me of Paul's instructions in 1 Corinthians, that the blood in the cup 
uh, when it's misused, when it's, uh, when it's received outside of faith and outside of self-examination, that it turns into uh, judgment and guilt, uh, that the medicine becomes a poison uh, if it is misused. Yeah. Yeah, so a very a very strong warning, and again, because the Lord wants to give his people his holiness, but that can only happen when he is the one who gives it, not when we seek to find it on our own. And so he gives these clear instructions as to how sacrifices are to be treated. If they are killed out in the camp somewhere, it must be brought to the entrance of the tent of meeting. And this is going to be connected to the matter of peace offerings to the Lord, which we've heard about previously in the book of Leviticus in those first seven chapters, peace offerings were discussed. And this is the matter where, for most Israelites, that would have been when they had eaten meat. They, they weren't going to eat meat just generally every day. They'd eat it as a part of the peace offerings. And that's why the Lord even cares about the sacrifice, the slaughter of animals here. So remind us of the, the peace offerings and how that plays into what the Lord's instructing in Leviticus 17. Yeah, peace offerings uh, were very personal uh, for each family, um, and they certainly had atonement involved in them. But the, the main purpose was actually to rejoice in the atonement and how by means of that atonement, the Lord had accepted them and they were at peace. Um, and so there are different reasons to offer a peace offering. Uh, you could offer it in thanksgiving for a gift in which God had given to you in life. Um, you would offer a peace offering uh, as, a, as God has fulfilled a vow or as you have fulfilled a vow to God. A good example of this is Hannah. Uh, when the Lord had given her a son, she returned to offer a sacrifice, a uh, peace offering. And then just a free will offering, uh, which is just whenever you feel like giving thanks uh, and rejoicing in God's peace, uh, you, would, you would offer this. And this is the one offering in which the people would participate in eating it. Um, so the burnt offering, no one ate of it, except for the Lord, essentially. He, it was consumed entirely on the altar. The other offerings, the priests would get a portion of it. And this peace offering was the one in which the people would take a portion. And they would take it home and eat it uh, that day in celebration, again, of the Lord's acceptance and uh and, and really having communion with God. And so this is probably the offering that most uh, foreshadows the Lord's Supper, in which we celebrate the atonement that has been made on Good Friday. We receive it, uh, but it's also a meal of celebration and thanksgiving. Hence, one of the names for the Lord's Supper is the Eucharist, to give thanks. Uh, and we're giving thanks to God, not for a sacrifice he's made that day, but for the sacrifice he made and in which we receive now in bread and wine. Hmm. Yeah, looking at, at this chapter and just trying to understand the logistics of it, it sounds like in Leviticus 17 that the Lord has in mind that whenever his people here gathered around the tabernacle are going to partake of, of the meal of ox, lamb, or goat, they need to do it as a part of the peace offering. They're not, it, it sounds like in Leviticus 17, they are not to sacri or kill an animal and just eat it apart from the peace offering at this time. And the reason this is, and I, I wonder about this, because I, I remember when we studied Deuteronomy on Sharper Iron about a year ago, in Deuteronomy chapter 12, 
when the Lord is giving his people instructions for what it's going to be like in the promised land, and for the people in the promised land, Jerusalem and the temple is going to be farther away for some, there is instruction that's given there that it's okay to slaughter and eat meat in your towns apart from the peace offering, as long as you don't eat the blood. That's that's repeated there. But it sounds like, in, and I don't know, maybe maybe you can tell me otherwise. I'm curious if you, if you know, because I'm, I'm not sure. It sounds like in Leviticus 17, the Lord wants his people to partake of meat only as a part of the peace offerings. And maybe just the fact that they're all gathered around the tabernacle, like you said, in the camp, makes that real easy for them to do at this moment in history. So I don't, I don't know if you, if you have any more insight in that, but that's the way I was trying to put some things together. I'm, I'm with you. I was trying to figure that out as well. Um, I'm looking towards the end of chapter 17, where it, it talks about hunting any beast right. or bird. And uh, so they certainly were allowed to hunt for animals. Um, right. and, and there, we're not talking about an ox, lamb, or a goat. Uh, we're talking about game. But even that blood was to be covered with the earth. Um, so, yeah, I'm not quite sure either. Uh, but certainly it seems as though when they get to the promised land, they have a lot more freedom right. uh, to basically eat any meat that they would want and didn't necessarily have to go to uh, what would be the uh, the temple eventually. Obviously, uh, that's not feasible. Um, and I don't know the reason for that. Maybe, uh, you know, they kind of had to save their meat just for the sacrifices while they're out in the wilderness. Um, I, I'm not sure. But I... Right. I think you're you're onto something. It's it's not necessarily clear to us. Sure, and I don't know that there's necessarily a a theological point there, other than to just to note how I think the Lord, at least the way that I, I see it, is that in Leviticus 17, their situation is they're all gathered around the tabernacle. So if you're going to go at, go ahead and eat meat, then eat that in the presence of the Lord in the peace offering. Mm-hmm. Whereas by the time they enter into the promised land, they're not always going to be going to the, the temple to offer the peace offering, except probably at those three main feasts. That's when they would do that. And so if they want to eat meat, that, and again, meat that's different than, say, game, but meat of these normally sacrificial animals, as you clarified, mm-hmm. then then they can do that in the promised land, just in their towns, as mm-hmm. long as they don't again, eat the blood, as, as we're going to talk about more. Yeah. It, it may be uh, comparable to today, where we as Christians have the tradition of giving thanks before every meal, that, as you said, hey, you're right there. You know, the, the tabernacle's right there. Here's this meat that the Lord's given to you. Give thanks for it and for the fact that by, uh, by the blood of these animals, uh, you have peace with them. Yeah, yeah. So again, that's that's the way it seems to me here in Leviticus 17, is that all of the meat that they're eating of, again, the ox, the lamb, the goat, is going to be done in the context of that peace offering in which they participate as a foreshadowing of what the Lord will give to us in his holy sacrament. Mm-hmm. Now, as a part of those instructions, there is there is information on what to do with the blood. Verse 6 talks about throwing the blood on the altar of the Lord. There's how you're supposed to use the, the blood. Also, burning the fat for a pleasing aroma to the Lord. That fat portion belonged to the Lord. And then in, in verse 7, there's just this, this interesting note, at least it stands out to us. They shall no more sacrifice their sacrifices to goat demons after whom they whore. Where, where, where does that come from? Who are these goat demons? <laughs> uh, I'm not exactly sure. Um, the, word, the word isn't goat uh, demons in the Hebrew, it's 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 the word that really literally means hairy. 
It's the same word that's used to describe Esau. And Jacob says to his mother, hey, my brother's hairy and I'm not. Um, And so uh, we've, but it's also sort of been figured out that, that this word can refer to a goat. Um, And um, I suppose we pull out of that also a devil or a demon. I'm not exactly sure how. Um, So it's, it's a strange one to sort of translate. Um, But it goes back to the fact that the pagan practices at that time would be to worship false gods. A lot of times those false gods were animals. If we think of the Israelites in Genesis, or I'm sorry, Exodus 32, making the golden calf. I don't think that just, you know, Aaron decided, hey, let's just worship a cow. It's probably something they pick up back in Egypt. And again, a lot of the pagan practices were to, to worship animals. Um, so here they're described those demons because as we know, anything outside of God that's worshiped is essentially of the devil. Um, but I also, um, you know, really, uh, I don't enjoy this, but I, I find it uh, um, amusing uh, that the Lord describes worshiping these false gods as whoring and prostitution, fornication. Uh, Paul picks up on this as well, that really false worship is tied to sexual immorality. Again, looking at Exodus 32, when they worship the golden calf, it says they ate and drank and rose up to play. That word for play could really uh, be referring to some sort of sexual uh, interactions that they're doing as part of the, the worship practices. Again, most likely something they picked up back in Egypt and would see uh, in the other nations surrounding them in the promised land. So uh, this, this gives us a better reason as to why the location matters uh, because outside of that uh, tabernacle, um, the, to, to worship outside of that tabernacle is to worship false gods. Uh, it's to cut yourself off from this intimate relationship that you would have with the Lord. Uh, this intimate relationship, obviously, we see fulfilled in Christ and his bride, the church. To worship false gods is to commit adultery with God. Our God is a jealous God. Uh, he does not want us to go after other gods. He is alone, our God. Um, and so uh, it's interesting that, that, that the Lord here uh, shows us that really this is a breaking, um, a breaking off from a relationship with him. Yeah, I mean, it, it it shows the absolute seriousness seriousness of idolatry. You think it's a small thing to go worship somewhere else? No, you're actually going and worshiping in the place where the demons are, and that's <laughs> that's not a small thing. You know, we mm-hmm. we maybe are shocked by that term goat demons and and think it sounds crazy, but we should take it in its utmost seriousness. You know, are you you're spiritual but not religious? Well, there are spirits out there that you don't want to mess with. And these, these demons that are described here are among those. Yeah. And even thinking of, you know, our Lord's uh, instructions, you cannot serve God in mammon or God in money. Um, yeah. We should take that a little more seriously, that, that when we do indeed serve money and the things of this world, we have to be clear that that is, that is worshiping the devil, uh, who is the prince of this world. That's, uh, it's no... A laughing matter uh, yeah. that that you are um, you are breaking yourself off from God and and j- tying yourself to the evil one. 
Yeah. So the the place of worship matters for the people of God. It still matters for us today. We're going to pick up that thought more on the other side of the break. You're listening to Sharper Iron on KFUO. We're talking to Pastor Joshua Haller this morning. We'll be right back. Please stick around. Who does Lutheran Church Extension Fund serve, you ask? It's simple. We serve Lutheran Church Missouri Synod ministries and church workers with loans and ministry services. And it's faithful Lutherans like you, church members and church workers alike, investing with LCEF that makes it possible for LCEF to serve these ministries. Learn more at lcef.org. LCF is a nonprofit religious organization. Therefore, LCF investments are not FDIC insured bank deposit accounts. This is not an offer to sell investments or solicitation to buy. LCF will offer and sell its securities only in states where authorized. The offer is made solely by LCF's offering circular. Investors should carefully read the offering circular, which more fully describes associated risks. Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Friday, September 15th. We're studying Leviticus chapter 17, verses 1 to 16 with Pastor Joshua Haller. He serves at Grace Evangelical Lutheran Church in Fairgrove, Michigan. Pastor Haller, prior to the break, we were talking about the importance of the place of worship, and the Lord has brought out the utter seriousness of this by indicating that to go and sacrifice elsewhere would be to sacrifice to demons, and this is no small thing. Now, for us as Christians today, how does this come to fulfillment? Because you worship in, what, Fairgrove, Michigan. I worship in Godfrey, Illinois. We're not worshiping in the same place. So how does how does this matter of the location of our worship come to fulfillment for us? Location still matters, but there is no longer one and only specific location. Uh, if we think of John chapter 4, where Jesus speaks with the woman at the well, who is a Samaritan, and she asks, well, we worship here, and you Jews worship there, uh, so sort of who's right? Uh, and Jesus says, the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, uh, which seems to be a clear uh, indication that we will worship the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, uh, that we will worship the Father uh, by means of the Spirit, because of the truth, which is Jesus. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Also in John's Gospel, Jesus said, destroy this temple, referring to his body, and in three days I will raise it up. And so now for us Christians to worship the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit is to, uh, the location of that is found in the body of Jesus. That wherever Jesus is physically present, there is our temple. He is our temple. Uh, again, in John's gospel, going back even further, chapter one, John writes, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. That word for dwell can literally be translated tabernacled among us. So Jesus' body, the flesh and blood of the Son of God, is our tabernacle, our temple, our location of worship. And so wherever God's people gather around that body, uh, as it's given to us to eat, along with his blood to drink, there's the proper location of worship. And so we could say as well, 
that you cannot worship God uh, outside of where he is present for you. Uh, this isn't to say that we can't have personal devotions at home in the camp, so to speak, uh, but it, it also means that those personal devotions uh, must be connected to where God is present, where he desires and commands us to come and to eat and to drink and to be at communion, to uh, receive the atonement that was offered for us on Calvary's cross. Yeah, yeah. In those places where Jesus has promised to be present, that is where the location is that we go to worship him, to receive his gifts. In that regard, I think the ascension of Jesus is a huge, a huge matter. Uh, because so if he hasn't ascended, then we need to go gather around him like the disciples were gathered around him on the Mount of Olives. Mm -hmm. But because he is ascended, then he is present in those places that he has promised. I am with you always to the end of the age in the gift of baptism, in the gift of teaching, in his body and his blood. In these places, we go and we worship Jesus at that proper location, which does happen in Fairgrove, Mission, Michigan, and in, in Godfrey, Illinois, and throughout the world, wherever those means of grace are present, our Lord is present there, and that's the place we go to worship him. Mm -hmm. Yes, thanks be to God, he ascended into heaven. Uh, that, yeah. that wasn't a going away party, but that was to our advantage so that we could uh, worship him all throughout the globe, uh, that he could be with us always and everywhere, uh, specifically where he has promised to be in his word and in his sacrament. Hmm. Now, with the matter of place still, still there, the, the topic of Leviticus 17 shifts more specifically, especially to this use of blood that has also been in view already. So again, we're going to do this all at the entrance of the tent of the meeting, lest people be cut off. But then well, what about the blood involved? Beginning then in verse 10, if any one of the house of Israel or of the strangers who sojourn among them eats any blood, I will set my face against that person who eats blood and will cut him off from among his people. So again, we've got some really strong language, not only for going to a different place of worship, but now for eating or drinking the blood within worship. Talk to us about these specific penalties that are, are beginning to give in here. Yeah, this is, again, very serious, uh, no laughing matter, that uh, to eat the blood, again, a uh, something that the pagans at that time, both in Egypt and surrounding the Promised Land, would have been doing uh, would be to join themselves to false gods. Um, it's not as though the blood is going to be bad for them, and it's going to be harmful to them physically, just like the fruit in the Garden of Eden wasn't poisonous or rotten. It's simply God said, don't do it, yeah. right? Uh, to eat of that fruit, Adam and Eve, would be to tie yourself to the, the serpent who's now tempted you to do it. To eat of the blood would be to tie yourself to, to these goat demons, these devils, um, and these, these, these false gods. So again, we get that the punishment is to be cut off from among his people. Uh, this serious excommunication, this total uh, taking away of the communion uh, with God. And, and here it's a little different. Um, maybe this isn't as important as I think it might be, but he's saying, I will cut you off from among the people. Whereas in the others, is you will be cut off. Here it's, it's, let it be clear, I'm going to be the one to remove you. I'm going to be the one to cut off uh, the peace that you have with me. Well, and even in the language that comes before that, the Lord says he's going to set his face against that person. Yeah. 
Yeah. And uh, I love this word for face in, in the Hebrew. It pops up all the time and it's, it's so important, especially when speaking of God's face, um, which of course, being a spirit, he doesn't necessarily have a face like, like we do, but this helps us better understand it, especially looking at the ironic benediction that we hear in the divine service, where it says the Lord lift up his face upon you. We translate it, countenance upon you. But I always think of when I was a kid and, uh, you know, I screwed up and did something bad and my parents heard about it and their face falls, right? Mm. They are ashamed. They don't even want to look at me. Happened quite often. But the Lord, he lifts up his countenance upon us because he has atoned for our sins. We are at peace with him. We are his people. But one who eats of the blood, who goes outside of that fellowship, uh, the Lord will lower his face. He will set his face against that person. He will turn from him. He will not have that favor uh, and that communion with him. He'll be outside of it. Yeah. Uh, the, I think the mention of the Lord setting his face here is is significant. Going back into Leviticus chapter 9, into the inaugural divine service after Aaron and his sons had been ordained, at the end, toward the end of that service, there was actually a double blessing that was given. The, the people were blessed twice as a part of that service, as a reminder that this is a part, this is what the Lord intends to do through the divine service, through these sacrifices. He intends to bless his people, to set his face toward them with grace and favor. And so here now, to, to misuse that, then, is to have the opposite effect. Right? When, you, when you do not partake of the Lord's sacrifices in the correct way, particularly by eating or drinking that blood, then the Lord will not be blessing you through that. In fact, the opposite will be happening. Again, that, that same irony we talked about earlier that which the Lord intends for blessing, when it is misused, actually becomes something that, that does not bring us any help and, and harms us, in fact. Yeah. Again, going against what the Lord has instituted uh, is going to have, never as you said, the opposite effect. <laughs> so, yeah, it's never good. Never good. Uh, just, never good. just do what he says. It's, <laughs> it's good, good for advice. You. I mean, uh, this, this really reminds us of the sacraments. You know, what gives power to baptism is nothing right. in the water. It's the Lord's institution. Uh, what gives us bread and wine? What makes it the body and blood of Jesus and, and offers us these great benefits? It's because Jesus said it. How, how do I know this is actually his flesh and blood? We can talk about the different communications of the, of the two natures and, and the sacramental presence, but it comes out, Jesus said it, so it is. He said, right. don't eat the blood, right. don't eat it. Yeah. So, so talk more about that in connection with with the matter of blood here in Leviticus chapter seventeen. Where, you know, I mean, over and over again, it's it's said in in one way or another, the life is in the blood, the life is the blood. I mean, talk about how then it's the word of God that that factors into all of that, and and what's being said here about life and blood and the connection. Yeah, it, yeah. In general, every life of every creature is found in its blood. You take the blood away, and you've taken away life. But it's not what makes atonement. It's not the life of the animal. It's not the blood itself, but it's the fact that that blood is brought to the Lord and the Lord is using it for atonement. So we see this in verse 11, for the life of the flesh is in the blood and I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. Um, and that word souls really should, I think, translate it for your life. So it's a life for a life. 
the, the way in which the atonement works is because the Lord is giving it, right? Which doesn't look to be the case, right? The people bring the blood, the people offer the animal, it's their animal. No, it's the Lord's animal. He is, he is the giver of all life. Uh, he is the giver of this animal's life. And so they, the people may be bringing it, but it's, it's the Lord's offering. It's, it's his sacrifice for the sake of the people. They're not atoning themselves. God is atoning them. Um, and so that's really where the power of the atonement lies. It's in the institution of God, in his word and in his promise, rather than simply in the blood or in the life of the animal that's, that's offered. Again, very much like it is for us with the sacraments, that the power of the sacraments lies in the institution of God and the promise that he attaches uh, to those means. Hmm. So, the, and that, that distinction then helps us to keep this from being just the Lord taking the pagan thought and sort of making it his own, but he rather distinguishes it entirely from the pagan thought. So the pagan thought would have been there's something inherent within the blood itself that has this spiritual power, this life, that I can somehow take and make my own by, by drinking it, by consuming it. Whereas the way the Lord talks about blood and makes use of blood, it is by his word that these things happen, not in some inherent thing in the blood that exists apart from him. Yeah, there is no life outside of God. Um, so we do not have life in and of, of ourselves. He uh, is constantly giving us life. Um, and so, uh, correct, to, to go outside what he has commanded is to confess that there is life outside of him, life yeah. to be found outside of him, that we can take life for ourselves. And, and that's simply not true. Here he is right. instructing them in a specific way to show them, to teach them. You have no life outside me. There is no life outside of me. And so in order to have a new life, to be atoned for your sins, you have to come to me, the life giver. Yeah. Now, now, as you've made the sacramental connection several times, that we're talking, you know, the Word of God is what makes this work. At the same time, the Lord does attach His Word to a specific element. He attaches it to the blood of these animals and not to something else of the animals. So the use of the blood of these animals is significant. You don't just get to, to choose a different part and say, well, it's just the Lord's Word that's doing it, so it doesn't matter. No, you, you use the blood because that is the, the part that the Lord attached his promise to. And so the, the blood, in that sense, does become very significant, even to the effect that you know, the writer of Hebrews will later, said, will later say, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. So the, the fact that God attaches his word to the blood, we don't want to lose the significance of, of the fact that he uses blood as mm -hmm. well. Yeah, and again, you can make the same case for the sacraments of the Church today. Um, God didn't just choose water uh, randomly, but we see water right from the beginning, that water is life, that the Spirit hovers over the waters, that, that Noah is saved by means of the water. Right? There's, there's, there is reason to this. And so, yeah, we can't just use whatever we want in baptism, um, just as we can't use anything but bread and wine, that this is specific, that we are being fed and we are, our thirst is quenched and we're be given joy in this meal. Um, so we can't use Oreos and chocolate milk. Um, and, and constantly, right, the way that we get off track in our worship practices, whether it's in the Old Testament or today, is we always think we know better than God. That we think, no, I know you said this, but really this would be a better way. 
I know you said don't drink the blood, but come on, life's in the blood and uh, I want life. So it makes sense that I should drink this. Uh, no, yeah. let's just follow the Lord's institution. He, uh, he actually knows better. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah. So, so keep the, the Lord's word central and keep it connected to that element that he connects it to. And in this case, that is the blood. And so, I mean, you know, when you look throughout the New Testament, and I know we'll, we'll talk more about the sacrament toward the end of our conversation, but we just look at how often the blood of Jesus shows up in the New Testament as the significant thing that God has given for the sins of the world. Yeah, it's, um, and again, as you quoted from Hebrews, without the shedding of blood, it's, it's not, um, it's, it's the blood that's offered it's the blood that's that's given sacrificially. Um, without that saving blood, without that life that's that's offered on the cross, uh, we have no life. Uh, he came to give us life and give it in abundance, and it's found it's found in His blood. Yeah. Now, now that blood that's given here in Leviticus 17, as it says in verse 11, is given to it's put on the altar to make atonement for your souls, and we talked about the the transition that we're making here. Chapter 16, Day of Atonement. Here we've still got the matter of atonement coming up with blood. Remind us of, of the significance of that term. Uh, the significance of what term? Atonement. Oh, atonement. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, atonement. Yeah. Literally in English, uh, we see uh, in the word atonement, at one. And, and that's what's taking place, that before there is atonement made, we are not at one with God. Um, I like the Hebrew word, uh, it's, it's kafar. I like it because it's actually one of those that is a little easier to remember because it literally means kafar means to cover. Um, and so that's what's taking place, that the blood is covering us. Uh, it's covering our sin. It's clothing us with new life. Um, and so we get a lot of different words to translate this, to appease, to pardon, reconcile, make propitiation. Um, I love when talking about propitiation and atonement, looking to the Ark of the Covenant. And the Ark is basically a box. And inside of that are a few things, but most especially is the two tablets of the law. And the, the law of God is placed into that Ark and then it's covered, uh, that there is the mercy seat that, that covers that. And on top of that mercy seat is where the blood on the Day of Atonement would be, would be given. Um, and so the beautiful image that the law, which kills us, that shows us our sin, is covered by the blood of the Lamb. Uh, certainly foreshadowing how Christ uh, is the true mercy seat, uh, that his blood uh, shed covers um, the demands of the law that we have failed to keep and thereby bringing about reconciliation that we are now at one with God. Yeah, yeah, such a such a key term in the Old Testament worship. Again, very clear in chapter 16 previous and it makes it continue to be clear here in Leviticus 17. And notice again the place that this blood is 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 going to be put is important. It's on the altar. Once again the Lord does not just leave it wherever, but it's blood on the altar, this is his gift for the people. So both blood and place continue to be in view. 
Now, as, as the chapter progresses, then, from some of these really key assertions there, there are these other, the other, other matters that come up. Well, well, what about the animals that we hunt? What do we do with them? And the Lord makes provision for that meat to be eaten, but again, you don't consume the blood. And what about meat where the animal died? We didn't sacrifice it, but it, it died on its own, or it was mauled by beasts. Can we eat that? And the answer is, well, yeah, you, you can eat that. It does bring a, a small amount of uncleanness for the rest of the day, but it can be eaten. And you do need to make sure that you you know follow these, these steps that God gives, lest you bear your iniquity in that. But again, the Lord, the Lord, I mean, this is something that you see, and we maybe forget sometimes in the the more law-oriented sections where it's just, this is how you do things. These are very practical things that he gives. You know, he's, he's dealing with everyday life matters in addition to the, the really weighty theological topics. He, those things end up going hand in hand here. Yeah, it shows us that uh, the, the, the divine service that takes place at the tabernacle uh, actually affects the rest of your life, that, uh, that we don't separate uh, the tabernacle from your own tabernacle. That's why we get this beautiful picture that their life and their tents surround the main tent. Um, that, you know, if to put this in, in today's perspective, Sunday morning should not be separated from the rest of the week. What takes place in the divine service at church should flow out into the rest of your lives. It should affect it. It should change it. It should change you and the way that you act and live out your life every day. And yeah, this is a great example of this. It just seems sort of like, okay, those are nice instructions. Sure, good, good advice. No, um, the, the reason for these instructions is because of those instructions uh, that are taking place at the divine service in the tabernacle. Um, so it affects everything. What happens yeah. at that tabernacle, what happens in the church changes everything, our entire lives every day in everything that we do. Yeah, absolutely. And we've seen that throughout the book of Leviticus, that what is set on the Lord's table affects the what you set on your table. And again, that's primarily what's in view here in chapter 17. But it's it's true in its totality, as you said. What happens in the Lord's tent affects what happens in your tent. The way you worship in the Lord's house affects the way that you live in your house. It's such a, a, a total, complete way of looking at the Christian life, not just Sunday morning, but every single day of the week. Now, within this chapter, Pastor Haller, the, the instructions about not eating blood are very significant. They get repeated elsewhere in the Old Testament. When people engage in this act of eating blood, we've already seen just how serious a matter this is. So this really did get imprinted on the brains of the people of Israel, don't consume blood. And it's in that context that Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread and then took the cup and said, this is my blood, drink of it. So, <laughs> whoa, <laughs> talk to us a little bit about, we've got about four minutes here to, <laughs> to make these connections to the Lord's Supper, the, the shock factor, but also the, the wonderful gift in the Lord giving his blood to drink. Yeah, it seems to be contradictory. The Lord says, never drink blood, ever, 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 ever. And then Jesus, yeah, shocks the disciples. I mean, they must have had their jaws dropped to the floor. Drink blood in general, but drink your blood, human blood. Um, so yeah, certainly shocking. And we think these things are kind of going against each other, but they're actually not. But the Lord here forbids the drinking of animal's blood to point us ahead to the time in which we will drink true blood, which is true drink. Um, that essentially we're saving ourselves 
for the time in which we will receive the full atonement of our sins, that all of the sacrifices of the Old Testament uh, really, in the end, don't do it. That without the sacrifice of the Lamb of God, uh, no sin is taken away. There is no forgiveness of sins outside of the shedding of Jesus' blood. Um, and so certainly shocking for the disciples on Monday, Thursday, but even before then, John 6, when Jesus says to uh, the crowds, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. Um, I think that's always so important that, you know, oh, why would we eat Jesus' body and drink his blood? I mean, that just seems sort of gross. Um, Jesus says there is no actual food outside of my body. There's no actual drink outside of my blood. All food and all drink <laughs> points ahead to this, which is to say there is no life outside of me. That your cheeseburger actually isn't giving you life. That you need true food uh, and true drink. And the life is really there again, as it's repeated, the life is in the blood. That without the shedding of that blood, and that's why in the institution, it's, it's the forgiveness of sins is found in the blood. This is to drink with all of you. This is the cup of the New Testament in my blood, which is shed for you for the forgiveness of sins. Um, and so, yeah, it's shocking, and yet it's beautiful. It's perfect. It's a completion of everything we've just studied here, that all of these requirements that the Lord is making are pointing us ahead and finding their fulfillment in that cup of salvation, which we receive in the sacrament. Yeah, what, what a wonderful fulfillment that the Lord says, don't, don't partake of this blood, save yourselves for the true drink, for the blood of Jesus, his son, which cleanses us from all sins, as St. John says in his first epistle, this divine blood, the blood of Jesus, who is God and man, this has the power to do to what the blood of bulls and goats never could fully do to forgive you of your sins. I really love how you said he connects the forgiveness of sins, particularly with the cup, Certainly the body, I mean, we receive the whole sacrament, but particularly that shedding of blood, there is the forgiveness of sins, the fulfillment of Leviticus chapter 17 for us. Pastor Joshua Haller is pastor at Grace Evangelical Lutheran Church in Fairgrove, Michigan. He's been helping us today to study Leviticus chapter 17, verses 1 to 16. Pastor Haller, thanks for being our guest today. Thank you so much. Glory be to Jesus, who in bitter pains poured for me the lifeblood from his sacred veins. So we sing, especially during the season of Lent, and we give thanks to our Lord Jesus Christ, who gives us his blood as true drink, so that we would receive him and his life for the forgiveness of our sins. I am your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Faith Lutheran Church in Godfrey, Illinois. If you have any questions about Leviticus 17, send an email to kfuo at kfuo.org. It's always a pleasure to hear from you. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again next week.